Welcome to the RV Navigator Podcast, your RV lifestyle digital home. Visit the RV Navigator homepage at rvnavigator.com. And now, here are your hosts, Ken and Martha, podcasting from their mobile RV studio that might be parked in a campground near you. Hello, this is Ken, your RV Navigator. And Martha, the co-pilot. And we're talking to you from a campground. Ooh, do we have a view. Perched over the water, um, looking at the bay that is part of the Valdez Harbor. And in the distance, we can see the Alaska Pipeline. That was busy. <laughs> the end, the very end of the Alaska Pipeline. That is busy pipeline. bringing you yes, the cheap, all that cheap gas, gas that we cannot buy up here. <laughs> Alaska, the most expensive gas in the United States, but it produces more fuel than anybody else. But that's uh, another situation that we won't even talk about on the podcast. But uh, it, it is interesting that uh, we have made it since the mid-month podcast, which has gotten good reviews, and we will uh, try to continue it uh, this month. But I do want to know what? why there were a thousand more downloads of the mid-month podcast with just you and me, and when the four of us had a roundtable discussion, it was... Much more popular. That tells you something. Uh-oh. We have to restructure the podcast. We need more friends. We need more friends. We'll have to, uh, well, listeners, what do you think? We're going to have to uh, restructure things, or do you mind just having the... The two of us. Oh, they don't like us anymore. Well, if we can help it, we're going to try to make this podcast uh, a typical podcast with all sorts of other good information besides just Alaska. But it is very hard for us to think about anything else. Yeah, because Alaska has become our passion for this summer. As you know, we're on a four-month adventure that is taking us to virtually all parts of Alaska. And since we visited with you last, we have been to Fairbanks. We headed north from Skagway and Haines and over to fabulously beautiful roads the roads down to the coast in alaska are these mountain sided roads with vistas that are just unbelievable i have to say also that the roads have been pretty good yeah we really overall you hear a lot of scary stories and maybe they were true back in the day but this day i mean certainly there are places with potholes and certainly there are places that are kind of bumpy but for the most part the roads are just fine and, of course, with the last podcast, we had just entered Alaska, and now we have spent uh, more than two weeks here. Um, because it's the, end, it's the end of June uh, 2012, and we are uh, much more familiar with uh, what the goings-on in Alaska. And I must say the roads have been very good overall. Um, you know, the two-lane blacktop type of thing that you that you run across, but we haven't had much in the line of uh, construction. And the roads, the frost heaves are there, and sometimes you have to go slow, but slow means 50 as a matter of fact, that's been great for our gas mileage. And I really appreciate all the pull-offs that there oh, are. Not yeah. only pull-offs because you want to stop and let someone buy because you're slower than they are, but pull-offs to look at the great scenery, yes, uh, places to stop is. and have lunch. Alaska Bible, the milepost that is sitting on my lap absolutely every mile we drive. Yes, You absolutely. always know what's ahead and what to expect. And, uh, and that's not accordingly. just the Alaska Highway, but all of the highways in Alaska. I wish we had a book like that for the rest of the country. Literally every mile. 
smile, they have something, and she's reading to me, and I'm listening intently about what's coming up around the next bend. It's fabulous. And it can be the hard, cold facts, like there's going to be a picnic area in a mile, or it could be um, historical information about what happened there back in the day, or how that particular lake got its name, or what kind of fish are the ones you should be fishing for in there. Um, all, all sorts of things that you want to know. And it does carry some ads uh, for Which especially uh, lodges and roadhouses where people might be enticing you to stop. But you can tell when it's an ad and when it's just the hard, cold facts. And um, <laughs> yes. assess the information Well, the ads can be helpful sometimes, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But we have found the language to be somewhat flowery. Because we have stopped at many roadhouses that are interesting, to say the least. Well, you just have to put aside your expectations yes. that you bring from the lower 48. Because this most definitely is not the lower 48. But in terms in of anyway. But in terms of camping, we have found that in most places, uh, the 40-foot motorhome has no trouble getting in. And we have camped in a number of uh, National Park Service or, you know, boondocky type of places that are very accommodating for us. Pull-throughs, big sites, no problem with with the motorhome. So uh, we have found this to be a very good way to travel. <laughs> and it, it has been very comfortable as we see all these people pulling into uh, motels and having having to eat all their meals out and that sort of stuff. But we don't need to go into that, but that's why we RV. And I would say that for the most part, eating out in Alaska is quite <laughs> expensive. And um, you can understand why, because you think of where yes. you are and how that food had to get there. We were in a very remote spot recently where the menu uh, at the only restaurant in town kept <laughs> dwindling. And we talked to the proprietor about, will, will there be ham in the omelet today? And he said, oh no, we still don't have ham. We're waiting for the big truck to come down the highway and bring us some more food. Tomorrow. And that'll happen tomorrow. So when you hear those stories in Skagway, they were always waiting for the Tuesday barge to bring right. them everything that they needed. You can understand why stuff is expensive, but I'm very happy that I brought what foodstuffs and detergent and things are available. Plates, There's no question about that, uh, except that not, not much diet pop, but that's okay. Uh, not Things are available, but they are really, really expensive. expensive. And I would say when you go to the grocery store, you can expect a 50 to 100%. Markup from what you're used well, to at home. I wouldn't call it a markup, but an increase in cost. For instance, we regularly buy two-liter bottles of soda, and you can usually get them around home for about a dollar for a two-liter. Here, you would be very lucky to find it for $2. On sale, it's for $2. On sale, it's for $2, and regularly it's 3 and three fifty, and we've seen 4 So that is just an example. <laughs> Watermelons at the store this for afternoon. $13 a $13 for a whole watermelon, you know, just and blueberries for $6 a pint. We bought, no, that was more than a pint, but okay. still. I bought a bunch of bananas at home. I can get them for $0.49 cents a pound. Here they were a dollar nine. And even going to Costco and Walmart has been, uh, expensive, which you only uh, cheaper find than you'd find here in but the biggest cities. Oh yeah, like Fairbanks. So the last we talked to you was in Skagway, and from Skagway we did a fun thing. We took the ferry across to Haines, which was about an hour. And it traveled a big 15 miles <laughs> as opposed to the what, 350 we, we would have had yeah, to have driven well, we to go all the way around. Cheaper to, than buying the gas, just take the ferry. And it was a fun thing yes. to do. So for an hour, we put the RVs on the ferry and we sailed across to Haines. And Haines uh, was much different than Skagway. 
much less touristic. Uh, Skagway gets right. four cruise ships um, a day. Haynes gets one cruise ship a, a, a week. week. And that makes all the difference in the world. So Haynes was a much more true Alaska experience. And we had a great experience with all sorts of animals there. We saw bald eagles uh, eating fish. And we saw bears, bears eating. <laughs> dandelions. They really like dandelions. One of the reasons why we've seen so many bears is because of dandelions along the side of the road. The bears like dandelions, and uh, the dandelions grow in the nice sunny area along the side of the road, so you see bears, which is very interesting. And moose we've seen grazing along the side of the road. For the most part, these animals are certainly aware that you are there, but they're much more interested in what they're eating than what you're doing. So as long as you don't get too close, uh, you can enjoy looking at them, and they can enjoy eating, and there's no... And if you'd like to see pictures, us. just ask, because I we have, have thousands, uh, thousands of, of great pictures. We don't, we don't uh, skimp on the pictures. Uh, so we went from Skanes, <laughs> that's kind of a nice combination, Haynes and Skagway, and then we drove up the Haynes Highway to Fairbanks. And this might have been a little bit um, geographically um, not the best way to do it, but it was the solstice, and we thought it would be fun to celebrate yes. the longest day of the summer <laughs> in one of the farthest north places in when the world. When you have sunrise and sunset in the a.m. It's incredible. I know it in your area of the world, it is uh, you're having late sunsets. <laughs> but sunset here on the solstice was at one uh, forty-five. And one of the things they did in Fairbanks to celebrate is they had um, (laughs) what goes for their semi-professional baseball team uh, had an an evening event that didn't start until 10.30 at night. Well, not an event. They played a regular regulation baseball game. And even though they had lights in their park, they didn't need to turn them on. No, they didn't turn them on because of the solstice. Solstice, right. So thousands of people watching a, a nighttime baseball game. I have to say, we didn't uh, make it exactly to the end (laughs) because the game was, we left about 1 o'clock. We made it to the seventh inning stretch and singing of the Alaska State Song. Which was done at midnight. And, well, we stayed a little bit longer than that, but uh, it was still plenty light to play baseball at 1.15 or 1.30. By the time we got home, we took some pictures, and you don't get to see that very often. So we put special shades on our windows in the bedroom of the RV because you do want to be able to sleep and it is important that it be dark, but it is almost impossible to make it dark, dark because there's always light, light leaking in. So if you come to Alaska, you do want to think about some uh, some way of doing it. We put cardboard in the window so that it... Um, and then we we'll take it down during the, the day so we and can we take see. it down during the day. Every night, even though we have come south substantially, and now the sun is now setting about 11.30 and rises about 4 a.m. So they have four hours of five hours of semi-darkness, and it's not exactly dark. You could probably go out and read most of the night. Although I don't really get up and check it out, but you look out the window and you could see definite light. No need for streetlights. No need for streetlights. That's it exactly. So we went to Fairbanks. We spent uh, the solstice there. We went to the Solstice Festival, which they have every year, which is kind of a street fair type of event. And then we headed south. Back home, going north means... Getting colder. Getting colder and not so nice weather. But going north here means nice weather. We actually had a week of summer. Oh. We wore shorts. We even ran know, the air conditioner. And everybody at home is saying, oh, 
it's so hot. It's yeah, so hot. We, it's we summertime. Know how hot in you the, all are. Yes, in a record, record breaking summer. But we have, are having uh, actually quite cool weather, and it was good to come to Fairbanks to experience some 80 degree weather because along the coasts, it's cloudy and rainy, and people tell us that that is the norm when you come to Alaska. Um, and right now in Valdez, it's uh, 55 degrees at uh, 8.30 at night. night, and it is cloudy and predicted with rain. We've had a lot of this kind of weather, so we didn't uh, are not using our short sleeve shirts or blouses or shorts sandals. or sandals and all that sort of stuff has been, has been put away. It's not, well, it, no, we have had rain. <laughs> it's been kind of unpleasant and cold rain on, on some occasions. So I guess I don't know whether that's just this summer or whether it's typical of Alaska. And we also have uh, enjoyed the mosquitoes. They're pretty pervasive. Very pervasive. According to the milepost, um, a moose can give up This is unbelievable. a half a pint of blood. No, they said a, full, a, pi- a, a pint, pint of, of blood, blood a, a day, day to the mosquitoes. Can you believe that? A pint. But they don't get uh, the bumps like we do, apparently. Well, they can't scratch. They, they can't scratch. Fingers. Yeah, so maybe mooses don't mind it as much. But I have to add mooses? that Meese? some of us uh, react hey, much moose. more to mosquito bites mooses. than others. Um, I know they bite oh. me because I see them, but I don't get any welts from the mosquitoes here, and oh. I do at home. Well, so there's a different kind of mosquitoes, but they are big and they are very aggressive. And even if they're not giving you welts, it's just annoying to have them in your so, eyes. Well, and so, and yes, we have had a few campfires, but uh, unless it's kind of windy, we don't really sit out very much, um, even on nights when we would like to. Well, not only that, but it's not dark. <laughs> So you have to get over the idea that you need to wait for darkness to have a campfire. Well, that's what makes it appealing is the kind of the flickering of the light. If you can't see the flickering of the light. Well, we're going to be interested to see the 4th of July, which we're going to be spending here in Valdez. And the, the fireworks, which they say, oh, not that spectacular because it's, it's not dark. It's not dark. <laughs> oh, if you come up here, that's one of the, the a lasting memories. And, and it's wonderful. It's energizing. You just feel like doing stuff for hours and hours and hours. So from uh, Fairbanks, we then headed south, and we hit uh, actually a new part of Alaska. and a place new to us. New, More to, newly developed for tourism. Yes. This is an area which you definitely have to consider. Um, we, it was kind of off of our radar until I did a bit of research, or maybe I got a suggestion from a listener about going here. This is the Wrangell-St. Elias National Park. The biggest park, park in the United States. The Six biggest national park. Six times the size of Yellowstone. Six times it. the size of Yellowstone. And it has kind of a unique history. Of course, everybody comes to Alaska looking at Denali. And kind of the, the pinnacle of visiting Alaska is your visit to Denali National Park or Mount McKinley at 14 or 16, whatever, 20,000 feet of our tallness. And we haven't been there yet. But the problem with Denali, <laughs> this this is going to sound kind of sacrilegious. The problem with Denali is is that it's run by the National Park Service. I they think. protect everything. They protect everything. They protect everything and for the average person who is, you know, likes to hike but doesn't really want to go into the wilderness, uh, well, by themselves or just hike around and you don't want to have to go through the bureaucracy of, you know, booking the National Park Service cabins <laughs> and that sort of stuff. The St. Elias Wrangell National Park, six times bigger than Yellowstone, has no 
permits for camp. No, no need for for camping or rafting permits. You can do anything you want except hunt in the park. And, and the reason why is is because the park was only recently acquired by the National Park Service, and so there was lots of private activity going on there prior to the Park Service taking over. And as we found out, the Park Service cannot put somebody out of business, so that guides and uh, businesses that did float trips and flight seeing and all that sort of stuff could not they, the Park Service has to coexist with them. So the Wrangell St. Elias National Park has lots of private vendors, which are, from my perspective, is good because it gives you access to the interior of this park, which you do not have in Denali. In Denali, if you don't take the, the pre-approved bus, uh, that's the only way to get in unless you want to walk. But to be fair, as huge as Wrangell St. Elias <laughs> is, is it only has two roads that go into it. Um, well, how many does Denali have? And they're One. both godforsaken to drive, and uh, they don't get a lot of traffic. Uh, well, so well, the I don't need think for it has permitting the, is not there. At, but at I, I think it's yet. I think that's largely because of its uh, it's unknown because it's new. It was only established in 1980, so that. But you it, can't get in there except by plane. Well, you can get in. We drove. On those two godforsaken roads. Yes. yes. Well, so here's the deal. You drive south from Fairbanks, about 150 miles, and you come to the road that leads into the National Park. And the road is 60 miles of gravel. Now, of course, we left our RV at, at, a the, beginning of at the, the beginning of that road, and we then drove the road in our car and then when you get to the end of the road literally there is a footbridge which you walk across with anything that you want to bring and you are picked up by a shuttle, shuttle which takes you to your hotel or accommodation this is uh, the two towns that are in the national park are mccarthy and kennecott kennecott is the one with the big name because... It's a National Historic Site because it's commemorating... <laughs> it's inside the National Park, but it's his it's National commemorating, Historic... commemorating... Uh, Not commemorating. It is... Well, a, preserving. Preserving, right. An absolutely enormous copper ore plantation, including a 14-story building that processed the ore. You've got to look at the pictures. The it's the Kennecott Copper Mine, the, the, mo the richest copper ore... Deposits ever found in the world. 80% pure ore was taken out of this mine. They found solid pieces of copper out of the ground the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. And they Did had, you believe that? And they had to build a railroad 150 plus miles I mean, the, to the get the it out of there. The infrastructure and stuff that they built it's for just this. Staggering. So the copper ran out in 1935, and the Kennecott Copper Company. Just plain abandoned the whole thing. So it became a ghost wow. town. Lots of people came and took souvenirs, shall we Locals, say. Locals. Recycled. Well, all sorts of people. Recycled, whatever. Yeah, they took beams and stuff to build other houses. They took out the glass to put in their own and houses. And the brass Anyway. Buildings. But there's still a lot there to see. Yes, you definitely yes. know what The 14-story building. There. I mean, it's incredible that there were hundreds of people living in this town, over 500, <laughs> and then one day they're just done and they're gone. And the whole place is abandoned. It's a ghost town. But the Park Service took it over in the 80s. And they are gradually rebuilding it and uh, renovating it and making it uh, available for visitors. So that's one of the reasons why you come there is to see this. And it is, it is a, a very interesting sight to see. 
And at the time, Kennecott was a company town. Everybody who lived there had something to do with the mine. The mining company um, had the rules. Um, it was a dry town. Most of the men were not allowed to bring their <laughs> wives or their families. Yes. It was work, work, work 24-7. So, of course, that will never do. So the town of McCarthy, ah. five miles down the uh-huh. road, uh, took care of the other needs of the men. <gasps> Which... And that's where we stayed. <laughs> we could have stayed in the brothel, but the room was so small that we opted for the boarding house. Boarding house, right? So there are very few people stay uh, actually in McCarthy, or and there's a but there, but there is a very nice lodge. And so you go, and they pick you up, and so you had, you don't have a car while you're there. And while you are visiting, the logical thing to do is to do some of the wilderness activities, which is the which is what we did. Because this park is so large, they actually advertise that you can be taken to an unnamed peak, and they will name it for you if you want to hike in or something. Rivers, nobody has ever sailed yes, down. R- right. uh, mountains, nobody has ever climbed. This is such a vast area. And, of course, this is quintessential Alaska, is this vast wilderness where man is not has not taken hold is not reign and king he's just another part of the landscape and unlike denali i think and one of the things we did there was to take a rafting trip yes. and we've done rafting trips yes. before but never one where when you got to the end of the rafting session there was nowhere to drive <laughs> Can you back believe this? from there's so no the, roads the guides had to disassemble our rafts and we had to wait on a grassy strip for a little plane to come in and we loaded the raft in pieces back on the plane and had to fly out of there. We couldn't drive. So this meant that we rafted 20 miles, and in that 20 miles we were so distant from any civilization that the only way out was to fly. That's remote. And that's, I'm not, that's the kind of thing you cannot do in Denali. And the other thing that you can do there, because they are so pervasive, is, is uh, various cool activities on the glaciers. In our case, we more did a, glaciers here than any place else. In we the did world. a glacier glacier hike, which uh, mostly involved learning how to use crampons on our shoes, which we had <laughs> never done before. Uh, and these steel hooks are quite effective to uh, help you stay upright on the glacier, no matter what angle it's flowing down. It's amazing. The crampons are, and, and to course, be able to explore. Walking. A glacier on and a walk glacier. on it was just for awesome. the average person. I mean, this was not for the technically inclined. You didn't have to be a climber or no ropes or anything like that. This was just walking, doing a hike on the glacier. And for people younger and fitter than we were doing oh, ice yes. climbing. Oh yes, all as sorts well. of well, ice cave, Caving all sorts of ice, things. Yeah. And so this is the kind of thing that the National Park Service won't let you do in, in Denali. Denali. Or any place that they would hold sway. So by coming here, you get the best of both. Not only do you get wilderness, which is beyond compare, but you get mountains and glaciers, which are beyond compare. And, of course, we're not talking about little peaks here. We're talking about the second largest peaks in in North America. Nine of the top 16 mountains in North America, size-wise, are in St. Elias. Yes, you can go to Denali and look at a 20,000... The sometimes, sometimes you can see it, but we, when we were here, we actually saw the 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 top of a, the sixteen thousand foot mountain, and 
it was spectacular with glaciers all around it. And, you know, it's just one of those things that is just very memorable and a world-class type of activity. So if you are looking to come to Alaska, then I would definitely do Put some research about list. this park. And if you don't have as much time as we do, the other way people visit yes, this park this is, is to fly in <laughs> from Anchorage. And uh, well, Most people did this. I, I would probably recommend it because then you wouldn't have to deal with that horrible road that we had to drive in and out. Right. There Although are, that was an adventure, too. There are, you can do it for the day. You can do it for three or four days, You, can, however you want to do it. And, of course, if you are really interested in doing backcountry camping... They have guides there. They you have can guides hire. there, and you can do all sorts of backcountry uh, trips: canoe trips, rafting trips, hiking trips, you know, whatever you want to do. There are guides, and uh, they have uh, arrangements for you to to do that kind of a trip. We did kind of the poor man's, well, not the poor man's by any means, because this is not cheap by no, any means. No, it was pricey. But uh, this was the the every man's way to do it, um, and and do the backcountry without uh, a lot of strain on your body. But we did walk six and a half miles which I felt good on the ice. Mm -hmm. So we did, we were able to do it. Uh, so you definitely want to take a look at this as a, a, a possible destination. Put it on your list. And maybe you haven't heard about it, but uh, read about it and you will be excited as we were. Because it, as we say, it kind of popped up on our radar without even us knowing it. It just kind of was there. And we said, hey, let's go. Because we're trying to do all of Alaska. But of course, when you were there, there was... No electricity, but there was internet. Great internet. <laughs> you never know. Most everybody in this town, except for the people who stayed in our little boarding house, have to use outhouses. <laughs> the guide, our guy, our guy. Oh my! She's oh, she said well, I haven't used a bathroom in months. <laughs> But the internet was great. And in our room, we didn't, I mean, we paid almost $200 a we night. We paid what we'd pay for a Manhattan hotel, let's Indeed, put it that yes, way. it was, yes. And we didn't even have private <laughs> facilities in our room. But we did have a, there was a toilet down the hall. Yeah. So you could flush. And it did flush. It wasn't an outhouse. Yeah, but McCarthy is, I mean, it has, and we the, had no the streets electric, are not paved. And we had no electric outlets in The whole place room. runs on generators, yeah. and there were no electric outlets in the room. So you had to go down to the lobby to plug your chargers in to keep things running. But it did have good internet. So. Yeah, my and no, sister and no, said... And no TV. I, I didn't see a TV no. the whole time we were there. No one knew anything about the news. No, no and, and you think about it, everything has to come across this footbridge, and they bring the fuel in in, in the, the winter, winter when over the, ice. Over the, over the river when the ice, that's why there's a footbridge, is because it's over a river. And they bring it over uh, in tankers, <laughs> but only in the winter. So uh, they do run out of stuff uh, as the summer goes on, I guess. But it's a very re remote location, and only like 20 people stay there uh, year-round. I would have to say that, by and large, in Alaska, the Internet has been quite good. I, yes. It, it appears that there's been a strenuous effort to bring the Internet to the local and, communities. Yes. And many of the places that we stay, if the campground doesn't provide Internet yes, for this you, has been amazing. you can see um, that you can use a subscription uh, yeah. and pay for it day we, or an hour or a week or however much you want at fairly reasonable rates. We don't, it's interesting that the campgrounds here uh, value... Uh, Internet, because even the campgrounds that don't provide TV, cable TV, in a, there's very little over-the-air TV. We've used our over-the-air antenna once. In Fairbanks? In Fairbanks. Yeah. That was the only time we've used our, our over-the-air TV. So if you don't have cable, then you probably won't 
have TV. And most of the campgrounds don't provide cable, needless to say, but most of the campgrounds do provide, or there is community internet available to so this has been a very pleasant surprise for us and by community meaning that uh, in Haines and Skagway and here in uh, Valdez they have uh, Wi-Fi throughout the whole town and it's been a fairly robust the service whole very um, I can think of a number of campgrounds we've stayed at in the lower 48 where when we would try to download a podcast yes. such as our very own here um, <laughs> things would kind of even peter out and here we are able to stay up to date with all the things that we like to download magazines come in pretty easily so yes. we're very impressed with Alaska's internet and and being that it's community based you can go sit someplace in the in town and you have access to it and you can buy your one of the things I liked about it is you buy yourself a longer period a of access mm-hmm. so you can buy yourself a week long and you can use it between cities. So the one that we bought in Skagway also worked in Haines. TV. Ah, uh, yes. Well, that is something that's kind of faded from the memory, <laughs> unless you have cable. However, I do want to mention that uh, our satellite dish has been able to pick up TV when we can see the horizon. And our satellite dish is so low, any little obstruction will the keep it from... The slightest spruce tree will knock but us off. when we got to Fairbanks, uh, that was a little bit too far north. But every place south of Fairbanks, if we see the horizon, well, or if we see the <laughs> where the satellite, the satellite should be is. with my satellite finder on my iPhone, I know that I will be able to receive uh, satellite TV. Now, you can't get this with an 18-inch dish like is in a dome or these little small dishes that you set out on the ground. But if you have a larger dish, and the standard dish around here is 1.2 meters, so that's a fairly large dish, you're not going to carry that with For you. Homes. For homes. But uh, our Internet dish, which is uh, 0.74 works fine. We've uh, had good connectivity and been able to watch all of our standard definition programming when we can see the sky. But seeing the sky is uh, problematic sometimes, like right now, because there are mountains. Mountains. How dare they? And there are trees on top of those mountains, and there are peaks, and there are all sorts of other things. You're in a valley. You can't really count on having TV either. But that's not why we're here. So we are rather isolated. Now... I'm ready to rant. Okay, you should, because you have been sorely mistreated. Now, time to rant. We bought Verizon because we thought that they had coverage in all 50 states. Let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, let me in let you in on a secret that they do not, and it is not a pretty picture. So here's what happened. One day, my iPhone just kind of died. It had a stroke. It had a stroke. I don't know exactly what happened. My iPhone needed to be restored, which means that I had to reinstall all the software. And when I did the restore, it said, oh, I can't find any service. I cannot find Verizon. And I said, well, that's no problem. And it said, if you're having trouble getting connected, then call this number, which I did. On my wife's phone, of course, I couldn't call because it said I didn't have service on that phone. And they said, oh, no problem. All your, your phone just needs to be reauthorized. I said, okay. And they said, uh, just dial this number. Blip, blip, blip. And I dialed the number, and I said, nothing's happening. And they said, well, where are you? And I said, well, I'm in Haines, Alaska. And they said, Haines, Alaska? Where is that? We don't have cell towers there. I said, well, my wife is I'm talking on her phone. Oh, no, no, that's not ours. You have to go to Fairbanks. 
So I got a credit for two weeks when I couldn't use my iPhone until I got to Fairbanks. I got to Fairbanks. I called Verizon, and they said, here, dial this number. I dialed the number, and it didn't connect up. And they said, well, where are you? I said, I'm in Fairbanks. They said, we don't have a service in Alaska. I said, Verizon, the largest carrier in the United States, does not have any cell towers in Alaska. Yep, that's right. We, so we can't authorize your phone unless you're on one of our towers. And I'm not going to be I mean, back my, my, in the lower 48 for months. I'm what not going. Yes, I'm not going to be back for three and a half months. What should I do? What should I do? Now you got to sit down. You've got to sit down for this one. What did I do? What should I do? Fly to Washington State. To reauthorize, to reauthorize my cell phone. That's what he recommended to us. <laughs> Just fly to Washington. Yep, that's what you got to do. Fly to Washington State to authorize my cell phone. Yep. So, needless um, to say, that uh, hasn't happened. <laughs> And it's not going to happen. I am really ticked off at, at Verizon. Rightly so. I cannot believe that they advertise. So, although the coverage is is included Quite, in our package, and I and, and on my phone, which still works, I get four bars often. But it never says AT and T. It always never. says extended service. Never. So what has happened is is that Verizon really doesn't own any towers in Alaska. They just contract for service from other providers while you're in Alaska, and they don't charge you anything for this for roaming service. Mm-hmm. So when you go to Canada, they charge you for roaming. And when you come to Alaska, they, I think, alertly don't want you to know that you're not really using Verizon, so they let you roam. So what did I do? Well, I needed a phone, or I thought I did. So I went <laughs> to the grocery store. No, no, no. I went to, no, I went to AT&T, AT&T because right. I have the, uh, the iPhone that's a world phone that has GSM as well as CDMA in it. So I went trotzing into the AT&T store, and the guy said, I said, here, I've got my iPhone, and because it's a GSM, you can just drop one of your AT&T cards in, into the SIM card slot, and I'm, I'm good to go. I'll take it. I'll, I'll use AT&T on a pay-as-you-go plan. And the guy was like, uh-huh. <laughs> we, don't <sell. laughs> we don't sell SIM cards, too. Anyway. So that was a that was a bust. So I went and bought a this and this has worked out pretty well, frankly. A ten dollar phone. A ten dollar pay as you go phone at Fred Meyer, which is the big grocery store up here. Uh, and it's a nice little flip Samsung. And it's got a color screen and it's got memory and it's got uh, I can yeah. And you're saving money, except so, now you have to carry yeah. your iPhone and your Samsung. Yeah, well, that's a problem. And of course, it doesn't have all my contacts and stuff in it, but. Uh, it's a nice small little phone, ten dollars. Pay as you go, and I and I bought uh, twenty dollars worth of minutes, which was doubled, and so I get one hundred and eighty minutes. Uh, if you're thinking about uh, needing a cell phone for a temporary basis, then pay as you go plans are pretty good. If and you the find phones yourself inadvertently leaving your network, <laughs> this is an alternative. <laughs> inadvertently, so is that? I, I don't like to talk against companies that that much but geez that was irritating well, well I'm dear so, listeners when we say we like uh, something we know that we do and when we say we don't like well, something yeah you obviously know that we don't well we have talked a long time already and so we we do have other things to talk about here and i wanted to talk about some of the exciting things that have 
happen in the RVing world. I just can't remember what they are. Uh, but I do want to thank many of our listeners for sending us great emails about uh, their experiences in Alaska or asking questions about Alaska. Sharing blogs of you know, their Steve, Our listener Steve who shared his blog when, and on his trip uh, that he made in, in 2009. And we have another couple. Oh, Mary and Rod, they sent us a, spre- a spreadsheet of their trip to Alaska, which carefully lists where they stayed and what they did in each of the places and how long they stayed there. So as we move from spot to spot, we consult it, and yes. it helps us to make good decisions as well. So if you're doing research, uh, not only look at the RV Navigator podcast website, uh, but you also should look at other RVers because there's lots of good information about uh, RVing in Alaska. Uh, and we've gotten lots of good tips about this. You know, one of the things that we planned on doing is uh, quite a lot of boondocking. And what does boondocking mean to you? Well, to me, it means that I'm not <laughs> using any electricity or water or sewer supplied by a campground. I'm yeah. on my own. I think a lot of people, boondocking means getting back to nature and living off the land. Well, we're not doing that. <laughs> Uh, I had a I had a listener kind of send in and say, "Well, what do you mean by boondocking?" To me, yeah. boondocking means you know living Being in a out tent in the boondocks. And, and using a uh, a six inch hole for your poop <laughs> and stuff like that. Boondocking to us is being able to pull off the road any place and Blue using our RV, turning on our sixty amp generator so that we can power up our, the TV, my, our TV and microwave. <laughs> And by God, we got to have that coffee in the morning. And we have to have the furnace running at night. But the cool thing about Alaska is is that virtually any of the pull-offs, if you want to pull over and spend the night, fine. As long as there's no sign that says you can't, then you can. And there hardly ever are. And there, uh, we, I haven't even seen one. In many towns, you see the the parking lot at Walmart, and there will be 25 RVs in the in the lot. But you can do boondocking at Walmart in Lower 48. Here, you usually yeah. don't even find a Walmart, um, <laughs> well, and yes. you just pull off wherever. And we see people doing that uh, all the time. One of the problems that we've had with that is is that when you do just kind of pull off to the side. Uh, there's nothing there. There's nothing to do. I mean, you're on a what could be a very scenic spot, but there's not necessarily anything that uh, is close by to do. So we have tended to stay in the campgrounds, even though we have boondocked in several campgrounds. Well, boondocked by our standard. <laughs> well, I think I w- if I were on a tighter schedule, I would boondock more because we would spend more of the day driving. Uh-huh. And we would just drive uh-huh. and do and drive and do and drive and do. And then we'd be exhausted because it was 1030 at night and the yeah. sun was still up. And we would just pull off on the side of the road and boondock there. Uh-huh. But That's because we have a, a leisurely approach to life yes. as retired people, uh, we just drive for a few hours and go to a nice place with a campground and explore that area. For yeah, we days. do the spoken wheel type of thing rather than the driving and to the destination and staying. So that's uh, a different philosophy, and uh, we'd be interested in hearing what you have to say about boondocking, but uh, when we talk about boondocking, that's the kind of um, boondocking with style, shall we say. And, and you might have heard of this sort of thing, like I know the Burning Outhouse? Man Festival in California yeah. is one of those places where people go and boondock, um, certainly in Quartzsite, Arizona, where people go out and live on the desert for weeks on end uh, without any sort of shore power or water. Yeah. Uh, that's also boondocking. Because for us in the motorhome, we can live for four or five days without making any compromises in our lifestyle. <laughs> we could be plugged in or we could be 
self-contained. It doesn't matter. Maybe we should call it self-contained camping rather than boondocking. Probably more accurate. Uh, if you are a boondocker, you might want to consider visiting the byways.org website because uh, boondocking along the side of the road is appealing, and but you need the roads to boondock on. And this is a website that is dedicated to the byways of the United States, National Scenic Byways Program. It has funded 3,049 projects for state and nationally designated byway routes in 50 states, Puerto Rico, and the District of Columbia. And this will kind of get you off the interstates, which is something that I think we've spent too much time on because they're very efficient to get you from here to there. But if you really want to see our country and all of its interesting nooks and crannies, uh, the scenic byways approach would be a better way to go. Did you know that HGTV wants RV shoppers some people tour the country by in an RV and others choose luxurious RVs to live in ye all year round. HGTV, that's Home and Garden. Home and Garden. TV is searching for three couples or families shopping for their dream RV. They will shop at the largest show in America in Hershey, Pennsylvania in September. If you're shopping and you want to be on HGTV, you know, we see that show every year, the best of... RVing in 2012 or whatever. Well, there's somebody, maybe it's HGTV, that shows you people shopping for vacation homes yeah. or shopping oh, yeah. for right. um, yeah, a uh, home of their own somewhere else. So this is another take on that, only with RVs. Yes. And um, can they win one? No. Well, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know whether you have to buy it or whether you just shop. shop for but it. I'm sure there's it, just the notoriety of it would be cool. Uh, another thing that we've talked about for quite a while are surge protection. If you're boondocking, you don't have to worry about this. But if you do plug in, your RV probably needs to be surge protected. And we have uh, related the story of the bolt of lightning going down the center of our RV and blowing out all the electronics uh, to you before. And a surge protector would probably prevent that. Uh, so this is kind of like the surge protectors that you have at home, but it, it protects your entire RV. Protects it against low voltage. Well, what does it protect it against? And that's the question that you always have. And this company, uh, the RV Upgrade Store, has put together a chart which lists uh, all the surge protectors available to RVers and um, from all the, uh, the companies that are involved. They've evaluated the products, both 30 and 50 amp portable and hardwired versions, and they've created a chart which has the features of each one as well as the prices and that sort of stuff so that you can make some comparisons before you actually have to make this purchase. And I just want to add, as someone who is rather blasé about such things, I just <laughs> plug in my coffee pot and expect it to work, that we have had some interesting um, electrical problems in a number of campgrounds in the lower 48. Yes. When we went to Mexico, I expected it, and I was quite alert and wary about everything that we plugged in. But when I'm in the United States going from right. one campground to another, I don't even think about this. And yet, you can really ruin your equipment. We, we bought the one that's hardwired with us, and Ellen and Jeff, who are traveling in a similar uh, motorhome to ours, have a portable one which plugs into the pedestal before you plug your RV in. You plug your RV into it. It's your choice uh, how you want to have it done. I like the, the ones that's built in, but... It and really you just cannot no tell difference. when you go to a campground if it has yes. been wired by the owner who does not have an electrical degree or any knowledge about what they're doing. Yes. So protect yourself. 
Right. Um, and I, also something that you know that I use is the Silverleaf engine monitor, which is a very nice gizmo which uh, plugs into the engine monitoring port and then plugs into a, a box and then into a computer through a USB port. And it displays all sorts of great information about my engine as I'm driving down the road. Instant miles per gallon, the manifold temperature, the oil temperature, the transmission temperature. Every time I look at him and he's supposed to be keeping an eye on the road looking for the next pothole, he's got his head studying intently all this wonderful information he's getting from his silver leaf monitor. If we ever have an accident, this will be why. And then I ask her to look at it for a minute, and she says, I don't know what I'm seeing. So I just say, look at, look for the green dots. And everything was green. And everything was green. This device requires a portable computer, and it requires the box and that sort of stuff, and that can add up to a few bucks. But I found a company called ScanGage, which has a product, has an integrated trip computer, digital gauges, and easy-to-use scan tool that is in a small, compact package that's designed to fit on your dash. The so you can use it in a car, too. Yeah, I think they have ones for diesel as well as for gas engines. So you just plug it in, and this package looks like it's about three or four inches high. Not nearly as complete as mine, but it still is uh, only 150 bucks, and that includes the whole thing because you, you don't have to have a computer. And it's compact if you have a smaller vehicle. But it doesn't do have it. a color screen. It would be much more practical. It doesn't have a color screen. And you might be able to it put it customizable gauges near your field of vision while you're driving down the road. Anyway, I haven't actually used this product, but uh, you might want to take a look at it, and I will put a link to it on the homepage, assuming that I get the homepage done, and I think I probably will. Now, how many times do you have a switch that doesn't have an indicator light, that doesn't tell you whether it's turned on or not? Nearly always. Right. Wouldn't that be nice? So that when the water pump is on, there's a green light that tells you that it's on. When I need it is when I plug us into the pedestal, yes. and I can never tell whether oh, the power is on or off. That's where they need to put it. Well, I have an indicator gauge, but not outside. Okay, so if you are, these little lights, if you, either yours is burned out like for the water heater or the this, this step is locked out or whatever the problem is, if you need an indicator light, you can buy these now for about 3 bucks each. So the link is on the website for the indicator lights that you can buy to So where do you put it? You'd put it next to the light. You'd put a little hole. You have to wire it in? Well, of course you have to wire it in. Well, that sounds too complicated. That's easy. Just put it across the switch and then it lights when it... Okay. But that's specifically designed for that purpose. I'm glad you know how to do these things. Oh, well, anybody would, because it comes with the directions. Here's the description. Got an electrical switch with an indicator light on it. These little lights illuminate to say when your water heater is on or when your doorstop is st step is locked. The problem is sometimes these little telltale lights die, leaving you in the quote-unquote dark. Finding a replacement switch can be costly, if not impossible task. Here's how to do it inexpensively. Add an LED indicator. And last, but if you want something cheap... Oh, this looks cheap, all right. <laughs> I like my LED lights, that are my solar lights outside to light. I haven't had a chance to use my, my night. You don't oh, need my, them. I know. It's always but, light out. But I know, but I've been wanting to. <coughs> but now, if you just kind of like some illumination around your campsite. Well, and as this points out, nearly every rig that I've ever seen has some kind of an exterior outlet, and you might as well use it for something. So why not put your light Plug in, in a, a bucket? bucket? Like <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not very um, aesthetically pleasing, but, but it provides nice. you a nice little yeah, night light for better your than RV. tripping. 
better than tripping. You put it right by your steps so that you can get into your RV without a problem. So with that, we will, uh, well, we're actually going to be back fairly soon. Yes, In we just are. just a couple of weeks, we'll be back with the quadro host show and we apologize for being a little late this, and this will you time? guys download this show to show us that you appreciate that, this one that it's just the two of us <laughs> oh people are telling us the real story here they like the, the four people show anyway so uh it's been a pleasure talking to you and we hope that we hear from you about alaska and i hope this hasn't been too boring because uh alaska is on our minds part. yes uh, and sorry for the rant and rave, but, uh, you know, that's the way it goes. So we will see you mid-month in July of uh, 2012 for the next episode of the RV Navigator. And if you're in Alaska and you're camping in a campground near us, please come and say hello. We've had several people who see the sign on the side of our RV and say, Are you Ken, the RV Navigator? What's that? What's a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Lots of splaining to do. Lots of splaining to do. So we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Bye now.